Welcome to Brain and Vat. We are joined by Iskra Faleva from the University of Boulder, Colorado. Iskra, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Suppose you have two people, uh, both of whom find a wallet in the street that has some cash in it, and maybe it has an ID, and um, they do two completely different things. Maybe one person takes the cash and leaves the wallet lying in the street. The other person takes the ID out and looks at the name and then tries to find the owner and notify them of the lost wallet and return it. And you might kind of ask, what explains the difference in these reactions? And the interesting thing is that both reactions are rational. So rationality alone cannot explain why one person does one thing and the other person does another, because there are reasons to pursue both courses of action. So that's in contrast with, for example, somebody finding the wallet with the cash and dumping it in the trash, right? So in that case, you might think, oh, what's going on there, right? Maybe this person is insane or something. So we can set that case aside and just sort of focus on the cases of the two people who, who both act for reasons, they both act rationally, but they do these two very different things. And one plausible answer to the question why these two people do two very different things is that they differ in a particular character trait, maybe honesty or conscientiousness or something like that. And it sort of seems that we need to appeal to that trait in order to explain these differences, in order to explain why one person finds the sort of attraction of the free cash compelling and the other person is maybe more distraught by uh, the thought that someone has lost their wallet. There are uh, many questions that you can raise about this. So you could imagine that several days later or several weeks later or several months later, the same thing happens and the reactions of these two people switch. The person who previously returned the wallet tells herself, ah, I'm going to keep it this time. And the person who previously kept the cash says, I should return it. So if that were to happen, and if you knew that, then you might kind of wonder, was it really honesty or conscientiousness as character traits that explained the earlier behavior? Maybe not, right? If people are not consistent. So we kind of see some initial thoughts about what, what character might be, right? So first of all, it appears to be something that explains why different people behave differently in the same kind of situation. But we also expect it to be something that's fairly stable over time. So if people do not exhibit these kinds of stable dispositions, then it doesn't really seem like they are having any kind of corresponding trait. So that's very interesting because people often talk about personality as opposed to character. Mm -hmm. And I suppose if you were to speak to a therapist and you told them the same story, so yep. you said, well, person A, they took the wallet with the cash and pocketed it. And person B returned the wallet. Mm -hmm. Tell me more as a therapist about what you think about person A and person B. And that, that 
therapist might reference certain personality traits as a person as opposed to certain character traits why do you think that character is a better explanation than personality so the first thing to note is that to some extent it's a matter of convention how we use the words character and personality and the conventions in philosophy and psychology are different and in ordinary practice it may be that there are no consistent conventions at all but maybe let me say something about the differences between the way in which psychologists and um, philosophers talk about this so psychologists basically don't like to use the word character. There was a journal in the 1930s that was called Character and Personality that was subsequently renamed to just the Journal of Personality. And that was because they thought that the word character sounded too morally laden. And they thought, scientists, and we don't really want these moral terms we study, we study personality. However, if you look at what they actually study, it's not just traits that might seem morally neutral. So there are morally neutral traits like shyness or talkativeness or uh, neuroticism. These, these things seem to be morally neutral. They seem to be good candidates for personality traits. But actually, psychologists also study traits like conscientiousness. In fact, conscientiousness is one of the big five, the so-called big five dimensions of personality. So then what is it that, that they mean by calling it a personality trait rather than a character trait? And I think what they mean is that they just seek to explain it. They do not try to morally evaluate it. Even though they're studying a trait that is morally laden, like conscientiousness, they don't want to make any moral judgments about it. They just want to understand how it developed in any particular person through what combination of predispositions and environmental factors and so on. So that's what I would say about psychologists. And in philosophy, it's actually more common to reserve the term personality for just traits that are morally neutral, like shyness or talkativeness. But to use the, the word character to label something like ki kindness, compassion, honesty, something like that. And then in everyday practice, I think people very often use these terms interchangeably, character and personality. And in some cases, I think are a gray area anyway. So it might partly depend on whether you are just trying to predict a person's behavior or you're trying to make some kind of moral judgment about it. So if you said, for example, that you shouldn't trust Peter with feeding your cat because he's unreliable, you could in principle mean that in a completely morally neutral way. All that you're saying is the cat is not going to be <laughs> fed if you ask Peter to do it. But you might also mean that as a kind of moral judgment. So that's a case where there is a sort of ambiguity 
between using reliability as a personality trait, in which case you're just seeking to explain or predict someone's behavior without making any moral judgment about it and using it as a character trait. In that case, in the unreliable case, isn't there a competition there between the Mm -hmm. two explanations, right? So the one explanation is a moral explanation. The other one is an amoral explanation. So the moral explanation, or in this case, immoral explanation is that, well, Peter, he is careless. Uh, he doesn't, he's cruel. He doesn't care about my cat. He doesn't care if it, if it suffers. Maybe he likes that it suffers. And that's why he didn't feed my cat. Mm-hmm. And he's the kind of person, don't, don't ask him to feed your cat because he's, he's that kind of person, right? And then you've got the amoral explanation, which is just that, well, Peter has a chaotic personality. He, he, he floats between things. He's easily distracted. He forgets. That doesn't place any moral judgments on, on Peter. It seems like the two explanations compete. So yes, they could both be true, but if you're trying to find the simplest explanation, you would just give one. You wouldn't need both. Why should we accept the character explanation, the moral explanation over the personality explanation, the amoral explanation? Yes, so the first thing to note is that the two explanations do not necessarily compete. So you could give the morally neutral explanation if you have a particular purpose that isn't moral. So you could, for example, remain agnostic as to whether the person is in any way blameworthy. You might have in mind something like this. Look, as a matter of prediction, I'm just going to say Peter is unreliable. But because I don't know why he's unreliable, I don't know if that's because his parents abuse him or he grew up in a terribly unstable environment or whatnot. I'm not going to make any moral judgment about him. I'm just going to say, don't ask him to feed your cat, right? So, so you could reconcile them in that way because you could just remain agnostic about the, the moral explanation. Now, the moral explanation is in many ways more demanding, meaning you kind of have to know more about the person in order to give that explanation. Because when you say that Peter has unreliability as a character trait, then you're saying something about his values, that he doesn't value certain kinds of commitments. He would promise to do things and then he would break his promises because he doesn't care. So if you are going to say that, then you kind of have to have more evidence about why he's breaking (laughs) these commitments to make sure that you're not rushing to judgment. So I guess there would be a reason to, to give the moral explanation if you have that, if you have that additional evidence. And if it seems that that's a case where you shouldn't really cut Peter some slack, he has no excuse for being unreliable. There wasn't anything unstable in his environment. There aren't any other kinds of purely psychological explanations. It's just a matter of having his priorities in the wrong order. He would promise things and then doesn't care about whether he does them or not. So if you have that additional information, you might want to go for the 
moral explanation, particularly if you wanted to hold Peter accountable. If you assume that you don't really know whether he's blameworthy, it would be very difficult and perhaps inappropriate to hold him to hold him accountable. But yeah, if you want him to change his behavior and feel guilty and feel ashamed, then then you should be giving the moral explanation. So often when we talk about character, it's in the sense of virtues and vices. And if we think about uh, a virtue like courage, it's meant to be the mean between two vices. So mm-hmm. between being foolhardy and being being a coward. And the, the advice is that, you know, if you sit in the one uh, side of that vice, you should cultivate behavior to push in the other direction, that you can actively make decisions to make yourself more courageous. If you're a coward, you should go out and do more brave things and maybe even things that are in the direction of foolhardiness that you can have this attribute. So my first question is whether character traits and personality traits are the kinds of things that you can cultivate because we often Mm -hmm. think about good character as something that can be built and you can make actions to get there. But personality we think of as being a bit innate, the notion that, well, you just are an extrovert uh, or you are a conscientious type. And then on the moral front, it seems to me the case that it depends how you apply the traits in the context. So we can imagine the very brave Nazi. So the Nazi yeah. who says, I'm going to put myself in harm's way so yeah. that I can you know, kill as many Jews as possible. And I know the allied forces are going to come and get me, but I'm going to be dedicated to the task of rounding up Jews and making sure I can get them into concentration camps. And he really does do brave things in order to achieve this evil objective. And then we can imagine the conscientious serial killer, the Dexter type, who says, I'm just so meticulous and carefully planned and I ensure that I chop up the body in just the right way and make sure that I hide the murder weapon in the right spot and so I can keep doing this. Both of these supposedly morally good traits, when applied to a certain situation, I think we think it would be much better if you had a cowardly serial killer and maybe a haphazard murderer who was likely to get caught very quickly. So let me say something about the second type of case first, the case of the conscientious murderer or the conscientious Nazi. So there is kind of a tendency, I think, to not want to ascribe any kind of positive trait to a bad person. So on the so-called hair psychopathy checklist, which is the sort of the instrument used to diagnose psychopathy, there is one symptom of psychopathy called superficial charm. And you might think, why superficial? Is there a deep charm? Isn't charm always superficial? Maybe the only reason we put the adjective superficial there is that we don't want to say that psychopaths have any positive traits. So we don't want to say that they are charming. So I think when people sort of exhibit that tendency, what they're thinking is that a trait that is uh, instrumentally good for some non-moral end somehow shouldn't be called the good trait. They they don't want to say that the conscientious nuts is really conscientious. They somehow want to qualify that. I think there is, however, a good reason to use the same term because a person could be conscientious and simply have very bad ends. And we want to distinguish that person from 
someone who has that very bad ends and who is super unreliable. And we might prefer the second person because they're not going to achieve the bad ends, as you say. But nonetheless, if we're just looking at conscientiousness, it seems like the the worst Nazi is, in fact, uh, a conscientious, uh, conscientious Nazi. On the point about whether we can cultivate traits, particularly in relation to the observation that maybe personality is innate and not something that can be cultivated, there is a long conversation to be had about this, but... I guess the main thing I would say is that the way in which I think of character traits is this. I think that character traits have basically three components. I think they have a kind of motivational component, and that is some kind of value, some kind of moral value. And I think there are special cases of traits that only have a motivational component. So if you think about something like secret jealousy or secret envy, somebody could be very prone to envy and never act on it. And it might still be true of them that they're a very envious person simply because of certain patterns of thought and desire. They're never actually doing anything. It's just, it's completely secret. They might even be overcompensating, right? If they are envious, but they're also a conscientious person and they realize that it's kind of bad to be envious. They might go out of their way to congratulate a rival that they're envious of, just so that you know, it's, no one discovers that, that they're envious. So that, that's kind of the first component. The second is behavior. So I think for, for many traits, behavior is kind of necessary to really ascribe a trait to a person. So I think it would be very difficult to say about a hermit living in the woods that the hermit is honest or not honest as if they, because they're not interacting with anyone. So we, we just kind of have to see and probably they wouldn't know about themselves whether they're honest or not. So behavior is kind of the second component. And the third component, I think, that pertains to, at least to some traits is an element of skill. So if you think about something like tactfulness, it's not just a matter of motivation and it's not just a matter of acting on certain values because you could be trying to be tactful and just constantly failing, constantly saying the wrong thing, even though you have the best intentions. So you cannot, in fact, have tactfulness without having a certain kind of ability to find the right thing to say in the right situation. So then if we ask, can, can character traits be cultivated? I think what we are asking is whether these three elements that I listed, the motivational, the behavioral, and the skill could be changed at will. And I think the behavioral component is the one that is easiest to change. And in some cases, that is enough to at least make it so that a person doesn't have the worst variant of a trait. So think about the secretly envious person, right? Maybe they cannot change the thoughts and desires, but if they change the behavior, if they are generous in praising the rival that they envy and so on, then they don't have the worst kind of variant of envy. And I think that behavior is basically something that 
we can in general control. Now, Aristotle had the thought, and to some extent, Shakespeare actually follows him in this. He has a really nice sort of verse in, in one of his plays about this, that if you change your behavior, you might end up changing your motivation. So Aristotle's idea about how people get to acquire virtue is basically first to go through the motions and do the right thing. And if you keep doing that, you will eventually start doing it for love of the good. That is the motivational component, as I would like to put it, will change. You will actually start wanting to do that. I think there is at least some reason to think that that can in fact happen. So maybe I'm going to give an example that is outside the realm of character, but it's closely related. So you brought up therapists earlier. I have a close friend who is a therapist, and she said that sometimes people would have a child and they would report to her that they do not attach. They, they're holding this baby and they kind of don't feel like they love it. It feels like it's just this, this little human that's disrupting their lives. And she basically advises them to do what Aristotle says you should do if you want to cultivate virtue, go through the motions. And apparently this strategy generally works. People attach. If they just hold the baby, they feed the baby, they do all these things, they gradually develop a kind of fondness and, and love and attachment. So I think that if it can happen there, it can probably happen in the case of virtue. It can probably, we can probably change our motivation. To what extent we can change the skill component? I think that is trickier. If somebody is not the kind of person who finds the right things to say on, on the appropriate occasions, can this person acquire the trait of tactfulness? I don't want to say no, because I don't think it's impossible, but it is probably difficult. And it is not the kind of thing that a person can learn from an instruction manual. There aren't going to be a set of rules such that you gave them to someone, they, they follow those rules, they will now know how to be how to be tactful. But even if that particular component we have limited control over, there is still the control that we have over behavior and there is still the control that we have over motivational patterns. It is, however, true that the motivational patterns very often have some kind of innate component. It does not follow from this, however, that the component cannot be changed. So first of all, the expression of it can, can be changed. And I think that's not disputed, right? So someone might have an innate propensity to, be, to get very angry quickly, but adopt strategies as a result of maybe talking to a therapist of slowing down, counting to 20 or some other number when the person feels a surge of anger. So they can change the way in which they act in light of this, this inborn tendency. But then more than that, it's possible that over time they would, they would change the tendency itself. So yeah, what I would say is there is definitely kind of 
some biological basis for personality and even more so for what is called temperament, something like being moody or being slow or irascible, these sorts of really more biologically based, very broad tendencies. But that doesn't mean we do not um, have control over the traits that these tendencies lead to. I can see how you might cultivate a certain virtuous character trait. I can, I can see that through Aristotle's account. And I can see why, if you did that, that would be praiseworthy. What I can't understand is why, intuitively, it seems to me, some people already have certain virtues as if built in. They're mm-hmm. sort of baked into their character almost at birth or very early in their lives. And yet we still think that's praiseworthy. Yes. Well, maybe we should not. So there is the so-called problem of moral luck that philosophers talk about, which is luck regarding what we are normally praised or blamed for. And one variety of moral luck is what is called constitutive luck. And that's basically luck with regard to character. It seems that some people are naturally disposed to be kinder um, or more compassionate or more honest and so on. And we still sort of want to, to praise them. And what is kind of more interesting is that we sort of want to have it both ways. So we want, we want it to be the case that when people have a bad inborn tendency, they're not so blameworthy because that somehow seems unfair. But then if they have a good one, we sort of want to praise them anyway. And I think the the kind of main thing to say about this is that the question of praise is to some extent separate from the question of praiseworthiness. So there might be kind of consequentialist reasons for praise that are independent of praiseworthiness. So maybe we like praising these people because we want to encourage them to continue to be the way they are naturally disposed to be or something like that. And it doesn't follow from this that we really believe or that we should believe that they are in fact praiseworthy. So I think in order to know whether people are in fact praiseworthy, we kind of have to know certain counterfactuals. We have to know what would happen if for some reason their tendency changed, right? So there's actually a case like that described by Henrik Ibsen in the play Little Eyolf. And Little Eyolf is actually this child who has had an accident that led to a serious disability and his parents are ashamed of him. In fact, it turns out also that the parents are guilty for this because the child was positioned somewhere as a baby and the parents were making love and the child fell while they were making love and they were not watching the child. But anyhow, I think we would want to know what would happen if for some reason, the natural proclivity was no longer there, as, as in the case I just imagined of the parent was very naturally disposed to be loving and kind, but when that was easy, when, when the child was 
healthy and happy and sort of good looking and so on. And then we want to know, well, if that were to change, how are they reacting? And I think if we find out that their attitude would change, then, then I think we can probably quite safely conclude that they were never in fact praiseworthy. It's just that luckily for them, they were inclined to do the right thing. They were naturally inclined to do the right thing. But the test is what a person would do if they weren't naturally inclined to do it, if that somehow changed for some reason. And I think while it might seem that some people are much more constitutively lucky in that they're naturally inclined to be better people, and I think there is definitely something to be said for that, I think it's also true that if you look at the entire course of a person's life, considering how many things change in the person's circumstances and how their tendencies might change as a result of that, you can kind of get a glimpse of what we might call the person's true colors. (laughs) You get to see, you would have to see how they behave if they were no longer naturally inclined to do the right thing, what they would do then. So thus far, we've been talking about character traits in individuals and individual circumstances that shape them. I wonder if we can talk about a national character or a generational character. So people often talk about the greatest generation in America, the generation that sort of lived through the Depression or through the Second World War, and that they've got a stoical character. And you could imagine people referring to the COVID generation maybe as a neurotic generation, a generation that has this particular character trait because they you know, had to ensure that everything was sanitized and that you know, everything was clean so they don't die. Right. Is this an illusory thing when we attribute these character traits to groups or is there something in it? Yes. So I think that there is something in it. So maybe I will start with a kind of striking observation that Adam Smith makes in the theory of moral sentiments. So he says that our very moral assessments are really tied to a particular time and place such that what counts as, let's say, bravery in one time and place might not count as bravery at all in another time and place. And he gives us an example, a cannibalistic society. And says, we could very well imagine people developing such amazing stoicism that they would be making fun of the people roasting them sort of before they die. And this could be absolutely unimaginable to any of us. Our standard of bravery and stoicism is quite different. We would call someone enduring if the person did something much, much easier than that. So that's kind of an initial observation. And then I think if we sort of look at maybe generations first, there do seem to be ways in which certain situational factors basically help build certain tendencies in people And these tendencies become traits at the point at which they're no longer dependent on the environment. So I think the sort of frugality of people who were, who remember the Great Depression, for example, is a good, really, example. It has become a trait. And even when there is no longer reason to be frugal, people continue being frugal. So it's no longer a direct response to the environment. 
even though that could be how it has started. And the entire generation might be much more frugal than a generation that has grown up in a very different kind of environment. So I think there is, there is definitely something to be said for that. What we should say immediately also is that these are group differences and they are not going to apply to any individual person. So it's not necessarily going to be true that your own grandmother is going to to have that trait, even if she remembers uh, the, the Great Depression. But we could still say that the generation as a whole is more frugal than, than Gen Zers or something like that. Now, national characters are, the question of national characters, I would say, is is a very interesting one. So on the one hand, you don't want to sort of stereotype people in stereotyped nations. But on the other hand, if you really wanted to understand culture and you wanted to understand why it is that, for example, A social policy that works in one place does not work in another. It would be difficult to make sense of that if you do not sort of think that there is anything like, broadly speaking, national character. There is a famous anthropologist, Ruth Benedict is her name, who says something to the effect that Culture is basically character with large. And Benedict wrote this very interesting book on Japanese national character, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, I think it was called, which was instrumental. Her work was instrumental in the offer that the US, the surrender offer that the US made to Japan. So Benedict successfully sort of argued that the emperor is very important to the Japanese and to Japanese culture, and that the surrender offer should not have any condition that says you should get rid of the emperor or something like that. So I think it is sort of really helpful to think in thinking about culture, it is sort of really helpful to see it as a kind of expression of certain dominant tendencies that in the case of a particular person, we would describe as character. Now, the, the, use, the, the use of the word would be slightly different in that as with generations, we are speaking about people in the aggregate. So we are not saying something that's going to be necessarily true of any individual person. Right. So any individual Japanese person could be a lot more like a person in South Africa than she's like other people in Japan or like a median Japanese person. And I think this is basically remembering that is basically the way to to take care of the stereotyping concern. Right. Just because you can say something true about national character doesn't mean that you can immediately say anything about any individual person. In any individual case, you have to know what, what, what the person is like. But I, for one, really find it difficult to, to understand culture, if not as an expression of the values of a community. And as I said earlier, I think that values are basically the motivational component of character. 
So if there's something like national values, then there is going to be likely something like uh, like national character. Maybe one last thing that I would mention about this is national characters have mainly been studied by anthropologists, not by psychologists, let alone by philosophers. And the methods of anthropologists are somewhat different from the methods that psychologists use. So some people have raised concerns about the methods uh, used by anthropologists. In fact, Ruth Benedict's way of doing anthropology was what some have called armchair anthropology, which was based on movies and literature and things like that, because travel to Japan and direct observation was very difficult when she was doing her work. So particularly if someone is doing armchair anthropology of this sort, based on cultural artifacts, then then you might kind of uh, doubt potentially the veracity of their conclusions. But I think there are ways to actually do anthropological studies so that the conclusions will really withstand reflection. Nonetheless, I would say also that I think it would be a good idea and probably people would be very interested in psychological studies on national characters, where psychologists would just use the methods that they normally use to study personality traits, but as applied to characters and in nations and cultures. So I think there's a good reason why psychologists don't study group minds, and it's because those group minds are incoherent. So there's two explanations for what might be going on when you talk about national character or group character or a generation's character, and you've made a compelling case for why why we might want to think of a national character in a holistic way. In other words, as more than just the sum of the individuals involved. And you, you have made a good case for that, but I think that there's a good objection to that, which should lean one towards an individualistic understanding. So the individualistic understanding would say, well, there's a whole lot of people in Japan And if you were to log or or characterize each of those persons with each of their personality traits or character traits, and if we were to add up the number of people in Japan who are, for example, honorable, then it might be higher than the number of honorable people in another country. And so we might say, well, the character of the nation of Japan is honorable, but I want to resist that. Mm -hmm. And the reason I want to resist that and rather lean towards or favor the individualistic understanding of just counting those individuals and never making the logical inference to the character of the nation is that you're going to find some incoherence that way. Because in individuals, there's certain character traits and personality traits that won't easily go together. Mm-hmm. Right. So, for example, I mean, I, I'm not a psychologist, so I, I'm just going to thumb suck what these are. But I imagine someone who's very cruel is not the same kind of person who is very kind. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you may, through weird problems of aggregation, find that in certain nations, cruelty or certain groups, cruelty is very common as a trait. And so is kindness, even though it's different people in that group. And so when you aggregate them together, your result is if you were to create as as if one mind, you've Mm -hmm. got a cruel kind mind, which is incoherent. And you won't find that happening in, in individuals. 
So it's this aggregation problem. And so when the psychologist looks at that aggregate mind, they say, hold on, this is not analogous to an individual. They're not they don't have the same internal processes and they don't seem to operate psych psychologically the same way as an individual does. There seems to be almost a schizophrenia here. And I, I suspect that if you do that with any group that's large enough, you will get the schizophrenic result. And, and that just won't adequately describe what's going on. And so I'd rather stick at the individual level. I'm comfortable with you looking at all the individual character traits of all the individuals in that group and saying, well, this, this particular personality trait or character trait is more frequent in this group than in another group. I'm comfortable with that. Actually, I'm not fully comfortable with that, but let let's, let's say that's okay. I just don't think you can then infer from that to a single mind. Very good. So let me say uh, a few things in response. These are very sort of interesting uh, points. First about the coherence. While it is true in general that certain traits tend to go together and certain other traits do not. For example, in one of the very first studies of character, possibly the first study of character to Frost's characters, he describes these types of people and he one of the types of people that he describes is the coward. And he talks about how the coward tends to lie about things. So he says to the, to the other people on the battlefield that he's forgotten his sword. And he goes back to fetch the sword. But what he ends up doing is just hiding the sword under the bed. And then he sort of, there is a wounded soldier that comes and then he pretends to have been all the time helping this wounded soldier in order to avoid danger. So he sort of shows how cowardice might easily lead to dishonesty that is just basically motivated by cowardice. So that is true. On the other hand, an individual person's character is very often quite fragmented. So it could be true of any individual person. And there are cases like that, the Nazis who were very good and kind fathers. There are individual people who are very cruel in one context, but they are very kind in another, which is one of the main reasons some people are skeptical about there being character at all, because it just seems that we are fragmented creatures. And if we don't want to say that individual people have no characters, then it seems like incoherence alone could not be the reason why a group of people would not have character. The other point about, about aggregation now, I think this is extremely important. And what I want to say about it is that actually in psychology, there are two main methods of studying personality. One is the so-called ideographic approach, which is an intrapersonal approach. You sort of look at an individual person and you try to figure out which of their motives influences another, basically what is going on in an individual person. The other main method, the so-called nomothetic approach, studies the way in which a given tendency influences another in a group of people. For example, you might want to know 
what the effect would be of a certain kind of incentive. Let's say you install cameras in a store. You want to know what's going to happen with the rate of people who are trying to steal something from the store. So this is going to tell us something about this variable, right? The cameras and something about this group of people. But it's only going to tell us something about these people in the aggregate. It's not going to tell us very much about any individual person. For any individual person, this, this factor might have zero effect or even the sign could be reversed, right? So you could imagine someone who is just so brazen that they would only steal if there's a camera there because there is no thrill unless there's a camera. And in fact, there are psychopaths who are like that. <laughs> they, they like thrill and they, they mainly do certain kinds of crimes because they perceive that as exciting. So they already study what is going on in the aggregate. This is basically what social psychologists do. However, you could say that there are serious limitations of that approach, it, no matter whether you're studying a group of people in one country or you're trying to study a country as a whole. And that is in fact true, right? So it is, it is true that what, what, it, what we know about people in the aggregate might be useful information in determining something like social policy. We might know that a certain kind of incentive is going to have a certain kind of effect in a large group of people, but we might not be able to predict at all who is going to respond to that incentive and how much. And some people might do the opposite of what they're incentivized to do. So it's not so useful at the level of kind of individual behavior. So, so if you think that, then you might think that yeah, the fact that psychologists already study behavior in the aggregate doesn't mean that there are national characters because these kinds of studies do not tell us much about character anywhere. They just tell us something about the correlations between one variable and another variable, but they don't tell us very much about any, any person and, and any person's character. So I, I would say that I'm actually very sympathetic to that. If I have to box myself somewhere, I would say that I like the geographic approach a lot more. I, I when, in, when trying to understand people, I think it's actually not so useful to look at studies telling you something about uh, a group that this person was a member of, if you don't know what exactly this person did. And what is a lot more useful in any individual case is to look at the person and try to discern their own sort of dominant tendency. And only that can give you a kind of fuller understanding. So if you think about something like, let's say, a committed revolutionary, who is sometimes honest and sometimes lies, but it's all in the service of the cause. So if you just look at honesty, you cannot say they just seem inconsistent. Sometimes they lie, sometimes they're honest. What, what are you going to say about their honesty? 
but actually they're very consistent. <laughs> they're very consistent with themselves because they're always motivated by the desire to promote this cause. So this is why I kind of favor the geographic approach, because I think in order to learn something about a person, you really sort of have to look to look at that person. On the other hand, I would say that if you want to have psychology as a discipline, it also is not going to be that useful to study one person at a time. That's kind of the literary approach. And it's, it, it could be very illuminating and it could tell you a lot about an individual case, but it doesn't tell you that much about human psychology in general. So you sort of need to find some kind of compromise where you... You keep in mind that people are complex creatures, that anything that's true in the aggregate might not be true in an individual person's case. On the other hand, you do want to somehow go beyond just studying individual people if you want to, to have some, something, like, something like psychology. Now, what does that mean for, for something like national characters? So I think it would be probably completely okay and perhaps most consistent with the evidence if we didn't try to paint any kind of general picture, if we just said, here is how people in this group score on, on these different traits. I think from the point of view of understanding, so this might not be the best kind of explanation, but from the point of view of understanding, it is very often useful to, to go a little bit beyond that, because if you just looked at, suppose you looked at evidence of how people give a nation score on some trait, that's just not going to tell you very much if you just stared at those, those spreadsheets, unless you came up with some kind of intelligible story and you said something like this culture is more honor-based than this one, or this one is more relaxed and it's okay if you're late. And in this one, it's not okay if you're late, something like that. But of course, one would always have to keep in mind that as you, as, as you rightly pointed out, there are no national minds, there are no group minds, there are only people with their individual minds, which is why I said that the use of the term character would be different if it applied to nations. So we keep that in mind, but nonetheless, we could say that there are certain kind of dominant tendencies and values that are discernible and that are discernibly different from those in, in other nations and in other places. So I wonder about, you mentioned that psychology is often about assessing individuals, but you get these personality typing systems that try and cluster individuals. So mm -hmm. the Myers-Briggs system, for example, will divide people up into these 16 personality types. And it seems that those types will receive information in different ways. So for example, you have a band of people who are described as intuitive thinkers. They have the capacity to think abstractly, and they're more guided by reason than by emotion. And then you have people who are sensory feelers. So they want specific things, and they're guided by how they feel about that emotionally. And you can imagine that different classes of people have different distributions of this. So I would imagine that philosophers and certain kinds of scientists are much more likely to be abstract thinkers. 
Uh, and you might think that, let's say, artists are more likely to be sensory feelers. And the kinds of things that they're sensitive to are going to be different. So it might be easy to reason with a scientist or a philosopher by giving them an abstract argument. And that's going to fall on deaf ears um, in a society filled with lots of sensory feelers. But if you give them a case, a compelling story, especially one that tugs on the heartstrings, that might be an incredibly useful tool for persuading them to do a certain thing uh, or abide by a certain kind of rule. So drawing those kinds of loose connections between personality and let's say communication strategy or between social policy, do you think that there's something useful in that? Yes, well, probably not in the Myers-Briggs specifically because that particular classification is not based on empirical evidence. It was not prepared by professional psychologists, although I think people are interested in themselves and Myers-Briggs tests are widely available online, so a lot of people have taken one, although it's also true that if people take the test on different days, they might get different, different responses. So what I would like to say is maybe two things. One, the most useful way to think about, about personality traits is kind of a spectrum such that people could score higher or lower. It's not a binary thing, right? It's not that someone is introvert or they're extrovert and that's it. It's going to be true of most people that sometimes they are more outgoing and sometimes they are more withdrawn. There might be sort of consistencies in the kinds of situations that might make them more outgoing or, or more withdrawn. But it's basically not going to be the case that people are just one or they're just the other. There might be a few individuals that are sort of at the extreme ends of the spectrum. They're very consistently sort of introvert or very consistently outgoing. But actually, even with those people, even people who are super extrovert, if you make them meet 20 people on a given day and spend, you know, half an hour talking to each of these people, they're going to get tired of it. They're, they're very extrovert and they will need some me time and have some time alone. So I, I, prefer a kind of Kaler approach, you know, where people could score kind of higher or lower on along a given dimension rather than having having a certain kind of label attached attached to them. However, I also think that it is useful to if you study a particular person to try to discern what psychologists golden Alport called the person's master sentiments, the kinds of things that drive them. So someone, for example, might be super ambitious. Someone might be super religious. Someone else might be a very committed revolutionary and, and so on. And I think those things can actually tell you quite a bit about other aspects of personality right? You kind of get to see why the person is doing what they're doing if you, if you know that. So for example, if you saw the room of a college student, let's say you saw the room of a college student and it looks messy. Well, you have no idea what's going on. I mean, um, it could be that the person is messy. It could be that they are a computer programmer who is super focused 
on programming to the extent of not noticing the environment at all. And you're just not going to do that unless you knew the dominant tendency. The difference between trying to discern people's dominant tendencies or master sentiments, as, as Alport called them, in something like Myers-Briggs, is that when you try to discern people's master tendencies, you're not restricting yourself to any particular dimension because you don't know what that master sentiment is going to be, which could be anything. It might have nothing to do with introversion or extroversion or any of the other things that are on the Myers-Briggs, right? It could be devotion to a cause, or it could be obsession with some scientific theory or, or whatnot. It could be many, many different things. And if you miss that and you try to kind of score people along other dimensions, even if you did the scoring properly, which that particular test doesn't do you're still not going to have a very helpful picture. You will still not know what is actually going on with that person, what makes them tick, as we say. So yeah, that's actually another reason why I favor the geographic approach, which could be very useful to look at a person and see what what their dominant motives are. But it doesn't follow from this that you can classify people into eight types or 16 types or anything like that. We don't actually know how many types there are, is that there might actually not be a good answer to that question.